Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Harm Reduction Radio. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight it is September 29th of 2016. And tonight our guest is Peter Ferenczi, Ph.D. He is the author of The Corrective. That's the book we're going to talk about tonight, and he has a couple of other books out, too. We might talk about those a little bit. Um, before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free of charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, a harm reduction guide from a-, a harm reduction guide to alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org/book. Our guest, Peter Ferenczi, is with us right now. How are you doing this evening, Peter? I'm quite good, Ken. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being on the show. Uh, Your latest book, it's a novel. It's called The Corrective. What's it about? Well, it's called The Corrective, and the subtitle is A Six-Day Journey. Um, Four people who once were out of control with their heroin use and their crack use um, now have gotten it together. They still use, but it no longer dominates their lives the way it once did. And um, it's a futuristic setting, maybe 40 years into the future, so semi-sci-fi-ish. North America is united. Canada and America are one country. And the world is dominated by a group of people that in current parlance would be called politically correct. Prudish, mm-hmm. um, you know, you know everything from eating meat to smoking cigarettes to gambling to you name it, they want to ban. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're called the collective, and this oppositional group, naming in itself in opposition, is called the corrective. They make mischief. Mm-hmm. They make mischief. Mm-hmm. They do what they can to undermine and to humiliate the collective whenever possible. Our four protagonists are on a journey. It takes them through old, old subway tracks that um, people don't longer remember. And they go to a destination and they break into a console and they make a lot of trouble. Essentially, they attempt to do something that will take down the regime. Well, what interested me when I started reading the book was the portrayal of the drug users, um, first of all, as heroes instead of uh, as the scum of the earth instead of demons, and, uh, you know, the way they came under control of their drug use. Um, so, because under the current meme, the what we're taught, everything, uh, no one can change their heroin use or their crack use. They just go down, down deeper until they either go to rehab or to death. And is that true? Yeah, and well, Ken, you and I both know that that isn't true. Um, people in the treatment business might insist on that, but they only need a certain segment. They, they base what their so-called experience is based on a really skewed sample. To make a long story mm-hmm. short, people who find a way to cut back without any help from the system don't end up in the system. And since they can't Mm -hmm, go on the mm -hmm. Oprah Winfrey show to brag about their heroin use or their crack use, they are sort of um, a semi-invisible population. But they're out there. You know that. Oh, I know that, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, 
So I want to bring this to light. I also, these people, they have their problems. They didn't become, you know, drug addicted in the first place because everything was okay. They have their issues, but they are solid. They are capable, and they're disciplined enough to pull off some pretty sophisticated and um, ballsy stuff. So they're protagonists. They're heroic in the sense that they face danger. They have a cause. They're a little um, anarchistic, a little juvenile perhaps, but they definitely have it together in ways that drug users are not supposed to have it together. So I've written a book that makes drug users look a lot better than the media usually makes them look like. Yeah, it makes them look like human beings. (laughs) Well, yeah, guess what? And they are human beings. Good point. (laughs) That's exactly it. They are human beings. They have their flaws. They have their weaknesses. But they have strengths. They have talents. One of the people is actually someone who holds a Ph.D. degree. It's it's their two characters, um, four characters, I should say, but two men, two women, and one of the women... Sheila holds a Ph.D. degree. She's brilliant, and she's very confident. She has had problems. She has abuse issues in the past, but she's dealt with them. She's not a cringing little coward. She is confident. She is powerful. And she's a real flesh-and-blood human being. And I think that just as um, you know, people of African descent were in the past portrayed very poorly, and it took time to start portraying them a little bit better, now it's perhaps our turn, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We, we who use drugs or have used drugs need to alter our media perceptions. And my book is a step in that direction. I think that, um, you know, 30 years from now, a book like this won't be as controversial as it is today. But right now <laughs> it's definitely at odds with the mainstream thinking. Well, it's interesting how the media and society at large seems to always have to have uh, one group to be their scapegoat to blame, you know, problems on, and it changes over time. I mean, I read Sherlock Holmes as a child and uh, reread as a teenager, and, you know, I remember Mm -hmm. very well, you know, Sherlock Holmes, whenever he wasn't on a case, he was shooting morphine and cocaine. Yes, um, and things change quickly. I mean, I'm, um, among other things, I'm an historian of addiction, and sometimes I um, surprise my students when I tell them that in 1905, if you were a young man who wanted to marry a woman that you loved, a young woman, and you're talking to her parents, you might be better off at that time talking about your cocaine use than about your beer drinking. Mm-hmm. Things did change rapidly. And scapegoats come and go. I mean, you know, the, the Hitler, Hitler and his Nazis, they use Jews in a big way. But society um, often has people who are misportrayed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, remember, the war on drugs is on the way out, or so it seems. And it's not as hardcore as it was, but you probably remember the mid-1980s through to the mid-1990s when North America was blaming every problem it had on drugs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it was like drugs were the cause of all problems. It had nothing, you know, the, the cause wasn't racism, the cause wasn't economic injustice, etc. It was just the drugs. Society likes to have things to blame all its problems on. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I still see. I still see some segments of the United States society doing that. It's like, well, particularly television, the media, um, popular shows, you know, fictional shows, sitcoms, dramas on television, in the movies. It's like every problem is caused by drugs. And as soon as you go to one AA meeting, uh, your life is cured, you know, and uh, <laughs> there's no more problems. <laughs> yeah, well... If the heat is being taken off drug addicts to some extent, and I believe the perceptions have been changing, mm-hmm. it's partially because the war on drugs was such a bust, we're maturing, and also because America has found another target. I mean, right now, Donald Trump wants to keep Arabs and all Muslims out of the country. You know, so they're serving a role to some extent that um, drug addicts used to serve. So we're not escaping think- that sickness, but... Um, we're spreading the damage around a bit, it's, so it would seem. I think it's very true. I think uh, that that's the up-and-coming, well, two scapegoats. It's uh, Muslims on the one hand, and then it's the uh, Mexicans on the other. Oh, Mexicans, of course. I forgot out. to mention Mexicans, yeah. <laughs> According to Donald Trump, um, you know, those undocumented people are primarily rapists and whatever, you know. Um, it's really sad. And but my job is to take on prejudice against drug addiction and against people who have drug addictions and people who might use drugs. That's what I'm trying to do. And I mm-hmm. you know, I've I've done it I've written other books where I just take on the system. You know, I wrote one book actually where I just take on the system with counterpoints and with facts and stuff like that. I had some success. I had I drew some attention, but I tried another route. Maybe fiction is going to be a better way to reach people because people prefer entertainment to eggheads like me just pontificating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is a story, and I believe it's a good one. It's funny. There's a lot of philosophy in it. And um, as you go through the story, you'll see that other people who don't necessarily use drugs are also struggling with um, what I call being stuck. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the morals of my book is that being stuck on hatred, you know, and it could be, mm-hmm. it could be legitimate. You know, you're, you might be a native person who has issues with history. You know, white people mm-hmm. did this and that to my people, and they're still doing this and that to us now. But if you stay stuck in the resentment, you stay stuck in the hatred, you stay stuck in prejudices, you ruin your own life. So many mm-hmm. of the um, characters, the, they're not the main protagonists, but they're other characters, they do struggle with being stuck on other things, not just drugs. There's a mm-hmm. political critique here. What keeps somebody totally stuck on drugs is not essentially different from what might keep them stuck on an unhealthy partner relationship on some form of bigotry that they latch onto. Getting unstuck is something that the book is about all the way through. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the biggest things people get stuck on, I'm just going off the top of my head now, is making money. And, uh, you know, I don't know if it's always so self-destructive, but it winds up being destructive to society and everybody else and that's 
actually, that's what the United States runs on. I mean, you know, I was watching Trump for a couple minutes on the debate before I turned it off. And he's saying, like, I didn't pay any taxes. That's because I'm a smart businessman. And I didn't Mm -hmm. pay my contractors because I'm a smart businessman. You're a crook. Uh, You get off on destroying um, people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me, I, I wrote an article once, and I was critiquing that mindset. And like usual, I talk about drug addictions, and I point out one thing. A heroin addiction can be satiated. A, a money addiction cannot. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't matter how much money somebody gets, they always want more. Mm-hmm. It never mm-hmm. ends. It's not as though you can just get your fix and kick back and say, I'm happy with what I got. It doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, people do. Our society is definitely driven by an addiction to money, addictions to all kinds of things. And drugs can be problematic, but they're no more dangerous than so many of the other things that people get hooked on. Mm-hmm. And my book tries to show that, too. Well, I mean, it's so, it's so easy and simple and clear-cut how to deal with uh, heroin addiction because Switzerland has already done it as have some, several other European countries. First, they make methadone available to everyone and it's free. Half the people on methadone in the U.S. are paying for it and they can't get it and they have to jump through 10 million hoops to even go to the clinic. It's ridiculous. Methadone is totally available. And on top of that, for people who don't do well with methadone, they give them heroin for free under supervised conditions, no one dies of overdose. I mean, the solution is already there. Other countries have done it. It is there. It's a fantastic solution. Um, right now, here in Canada, we've, we're at the point where in very rare cases, a doctor can give somebody heroin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not mainstream yet. It, it's very rare a doctor would have to jump through I don't know how many hoops and tangles in order to pull it off, but at least we have opened that door. So hopefully, you know, hopefully Canada will do it, will pursue this and make it broader, and hopefully our, our American friends, you guys stateside, will do the same. It would really help a lot of people. It would be good for society. It would clear out our prisons. It would reduce the crime rate. It's mm-hmm. win all around. Mm-hmm. But the problem is trying to get the well, the politicians and the people to actually understand that this exists. Because if you talk to the average person on the street and say, "Well, the you know, give heroin addicts free heroin from the government," <laughs> you're going to get uh, yeah, awful he'd say pushback. you're crazy. I know, mm-hmm. I know. We have a long way to go. But I remember when um, needle exchange was really, really controversial, and it no longer is here in Canada. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Needle exchange is not controversial. And they started giving out crack kits for people to make crack smoking safer. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was a problem at first. Cops had no right, but they would still take the crack kit away from somebody and stomp it into the ground. But mm-hmm. more and more... It's changing. It's just a very slow process. Yeah, I know. There's still 
I know there's still opposition to needle exchange in the United States quite a bit, well, a lot. But, you know, mm-hmm. it's, weird, it's weird because I never see it because I travel in certain circles where it's totally accepted. But I know from the statistics, I mean, half the state in the U.S., it's still illegal to do needle exchange. And it's really hard to get clean needles in many states. Texas, Florida are examples. Um, it, it's it's mind-boggling to me, especially, you know, because I've been around, like, Minneapolis and uh, New York City, you know, where needle exchange is so normalized. It is normalized. And um, right now um, we're going to have safe injection sites here in Toronto. Vancouver set the standard in Canada for that, but it's spreading around. I think Montreal is on the ticket, too. Mm-hmm. Safe injection sites. Are there any safe injection sites in the United States? I mean, legal ones? Uh, not yet, but it looks like uh, Seattle and uh, Ithaca, New York, are both really pushing to get them going. And it looks like the uh, city governments are very much in favor of this in those two cities. Hmm. Well, that's a good thing. You know, in my book, I talk about how, you know, the, the, the people in charge, the collective, they do want abstinence solutions. Abstinence from a lot of things, everything from violent sports to meat eating to um, abstinence from hard rock to, you know, it's that kind of regime, right? But that includes abstinence mm-hmm. from drugs. And here are people who don't agree with that model. And they're, um, you know, fighting back. Mm-hmm. I mean, people should just have a right to do with their own body what they want to. I mean, it's called the right to bodily autonomy. <laughs> you know, it's part of the United Nations, you know, basic right. Well, I couldn't agree more. And there seems to be some momentum happen- happening in that direction with the younger generation, so-called millennials, people much younger than you and I can. Um, many of them support that libertarian candidate. I don't recall his name right now. Gary Johnson. But, yeah, but one reason that they do is because they see they see more clearly than people our age that the war on drugs has been a bust, <coughs> and they do believe in liberty. So it's interesting. I, I'm going to watch. You know, as I get older and grayer, maybe the next generation will be smarter than my generation was. I hope so. <laughs> Yeah, Gary Johnson is good on drug policy. I mean, libertarians are good on drug policy. I don't agree with them on anything else. Basically, their financial policy says, let the rich get richer. There, there, I agree with you, too. Um, Trouble with economic libertarianism is that it does turn into an oppressive structure. And sometimes whether you're being pushed around by a communist dictator or a big corporation doesn't make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, libertarians, um, they don't have a solution to that. So I well, call myself a be... social justice libertarian. How's that? <laughs> That's good. Uh, I used to, um, sometimes I call myself a, a communist libertarian. <laughs> well, yeah, well, we've got a long way to go before we pick up on anything like that. Although it's funny that a so-called socialist, um, Bernie Sanders, he calls himself that, and he 
he made some headway in the American election. I don't think that 20 years ago someone calling himself a socialist would have done anywhere near that well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, so, you know, things are changing. I mean, things are changing, and I I write in such a way that I want my books to be a part of the changes that are happening. You know, I, I want to see the day when people are no longer being incarcerated and fingerprinted and all of that just for a stupid joint. Well, once again, I mean, people should have the right to put whatever they want in their bodies. We have this myth in America that if you take one shot of heroin, you're immediately addicted, and when you're an addict, the first thing you start doing is robbing little old ladies. And uh, no, I mean, most people that take heroin aren't robbing little old ladies. But no, if they're you not. Have, if you have the supply, you're not going to engage in antisocial behaviors. I mean, opiate users, uh, when they have plenty of opiates, uh, they're some of the most peaceful people you ever see. <laughs> That's right. Um, the misconception in the past, um, and it's still current, I guess, is that all addicts, at least while they're using, are antisocial personality disordered people, and also they're psychopathic and sociopathic. And that's just not the case. Mm-hmm. There's no real link between the addictions and those other mm-hmm. conditions. I mean, some do fit the bill. Some have all all of those conditions all wrapped up into one, but that's just a misconception. And again, in my book, you know, these people who are still using, they haven't abstained and joined AA, they still use, but in a more controlled way. And they use drugs that you're not supposed to be able to control, crack and heroin, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, these people, they they are mischievous, they are anarchistic, they're rebellious, but they're not sociopaths. They have a conscience, they have ideas, they have values, they have ethics. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like like you say, they're human beings. They're not caricatures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, when it comes to drugs, I mean, one of the worst drugs in existence is still alcohol. And alcohol does make a, lo- a lot of people antisocial. It does make a lot of people uh, act violently. Um, it, as opposed to a lot of the illegal drugs, it's one of the most dangerous drugs around. Yeah, well, you know, all through the 19th century, the temperance movement and, you know, the moral reformers were far more concerned with alcohol than they were with opiates and any other drug. Mm-hmm. You know, the anti-alcohol movement was a lot bigger than the anti-opiate movement. Um, but um, things changed. These are all little 20th century stupidities that we're still trying to outgrow. And you and I, mm-hmm. I think, we're mm-hmm. part of the process that is helping our society outgrow these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I just, I just wish people were more aware. You know, I, alcohol is my drug of choice. It's my favorite drug. Um, well, mm-hmm. I can't say it's my favorite. I can't say it's my favorite because I like my caffeine too, and sometimes I like nicotine. But uh, between caff, but caffeine is pretty. Uh, harmless to me. I like alcohol a lot, my drug of choice, I will say. But, you know, i got to be damn careful with it. And I think that we, uh, 
you know, need to encourage people to be careful with alcohol because it's a very dangerous drug. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, people talk about drug-related violence. The vast majority of the so-called violence that's called drug-related is prohibition-related. Whereas alcohol does trigger violent behavior. Um, I don't know. I don't think that any other drug, with the possible exception of amphetamines, is as likely to trigger violent behavior as alcohol. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I say possible exception because I'm not sure. Yeah, I haven't checked the research on that exactly, but uh, I do think that the, the, that uh, well, the stimulants can can sometimes trigger violence. I'm not sure how frequently. Alcohol is very well documented that certain people, uh, when their inhibitions are released, well, they have a nice inhibition against violence because they have a natural violence streak and it comes out. Yeah. You know, that's a fact. But, you know, not everybody's violent at heart. I can drink all I want and never become violent. That's not his problem. Yeah, I was mostly a happy drunk. Um, sometimes I was annoying, but I didn't pick fights. I didn't do that when I was yeah. drinking all the time. But some people do. I mean, if these things really are person-specific, and that's another important thing to remember. You know, mm-hmm. The most dangerous mm-hmm. drug for one person might not be the most dangerous drug for another. To simply label mm-hmm. a drug as bad in itself isn't right. Even if it messes up a lot of people, it doesn't mess up everyone who tries it. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, we know we know that the vast majority of people that drink alcohol uh, drink very moderately. They know, they don't become heavy drinkers, or if they ever do, it's a very very short period in their youth. And most people use alcohol. Don't drink a lot. They're very moderate. Um, I still, when I drink, I like to drink once a week, and I like to drink a lot. But I do it at home, and I'm safe. And I don't drink mm-hmm. seven days a week or five days a week, you know, so it wastes all my goddamn time. So I don't get anything done. You know, I got to put limits on it. Say, okay, once right. a week, that's okay. Mhm. Well, I don't really drink these days, um, but. Um, about just about two and a half or three weeks ago, my mom passed on, and I did allow myself to drink for three days straight. Mm-hmm, I didn't get mm-hmm. totally smashed, but I caught a buzz on all day long. So I went back to a pattern, back to, to a drug that I used to enjoy all the time. Mm-hmm, so once mm-hmm. again, I just made a decision that this is the time I'm going to do this, and doing this mm-hmm. did not cause my alcoholism to come back full blown. It did not have that effect. Mm-hmm. After three days, I stopped, and that was the plan. Well, that's an important word you just said is decision, because decision is involved every time somebody uses a drug. It's always a decision. There is no loss of free will. Um, I mean, changing your drug use habit can be hard. It's a lot of work. It's not an impossibility. Nobody becomes a slave to the drug. Nobody loses their free will. And that's what happens, you know, when people decide it is worth the effort they need to make the change, they make the change. Well, that's, that, that's again, it's like we need to get away from thinking in absolutes. I will mm-hmm. grant that a drug addiction will compromise your free will, 
but it doesn't take yeah. it away entirely. It's not yeah. black and white. It's not either or. And that's why I'm a better commentator to speak of impairment of control rather than loss of control. Loss mm-hmm. of control just mm-hmm. isn't real. Yeah, it's not real. It's it's difficult. It's it's more difficult when you're uh, you know when you meet the criteria for dependence. It's more difficult to say no than if you don't meet the criteria. But mm-hmm. you know, difficult is not the same as impossible. Yeah, yeah, and people do outgrow their addictions, and many of the people who outgrow their addictions do not abstain completely. They do, in fact, cut back, which is the exact opposite of, um, you know, current addiction lore. You know, treatment treatment institutions have their own propaganda, and so does AA. But my four protagonists um, go against the grain. They did get a handle on their substance use, but they did not mm-hmm. abstain completely. Mm-hmm. And there are times when, between little adventures, they will in this in this in this book they'll take the time you know to do a smash do a blast they do that but they don't keep it up because they have to be on Mm -hmm. the ball they've got a mission to accomplish Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and of course some people do decide do decide to abstain because they say well it's easier to abstain than to control the use and that's a perfectly good solution too it can be a perfect solution, but, you know, I mean, what's easy for one person isn't easy for another. You've got to find your own. Easy. Mm-hmm. And I think you'd mm-hmm. probably agree with that, wouldn't you, Ken? Absolutely. I mean, it's just, I mean, controlled use is just as good a solution as total abstinence. Depends on the person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be controlled use necessarily or a measure of control, but you can actually give yourself time out. So I'm going to be out of control tonight. But mm-hmm. tomorrow morning mm-hmm. I'm back at work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a measure of control, but you are opening up to a level of out-of-controlness. You know? And that can be very liberating. It can just give you a feeling of freedom. You're dropping your inhibitions for a while. Mm. It can be refreshing. For some people, it's not a, it's not refreshing. For some people, it isn't healthy. But for many, it is. Well, for me, I mean, that's basically what I do. Because when I drink, I drink a fifth of whiskey. It's not mm-hmm. moderate use. I still consider it controlled because I decided ahead of time, okay, I'm going to buy a fifth today. I'm going to drink it. I don't have any more alcohol in the house. When it's gone, I'm done. But that's okay. a lot of booze. But, uh, you know, there's different ways to use the word controlled. When I say controlled, I mean that it's not fucking up your life. Yeah, okay, well, in that sense, sure. Well, we're coming up on the half hour. I know you said you might have to go after half an hour. Yeah, well, you know, like I said, you know, Shorter interviews sometimes are better for me, and mm-hmm. I appreciate you having me on your show. Great. What would um, you like to leave our listeners with today? Well, that, um, they can go to my website. It's just um, my name, Peter Ferenci, 
F-E-R-E-N-T-Z-Y, and they can actually take a look on read the first 30 or so pages of my novel if it interests them. And it is available on Amazon and other outlets. I hope some people want to buy my book. Well, great. I, it's really interesting. I really got into it when I started reading it. Um, so okay, I would well, like I appreciate to you, you for, telling me that. Mm-hmm. I'd like to thank you for being our guest this evening, Peter Ferenczi, and we'll see you all next week. All right. Thank you, Ken. Okay, thanks, thanks. Goodbye. Take care.